Reading from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. I like a response. Uh, <laughs> good morning. So we're in Exodus 17. Now, Exodus 17, we see the Israelites tired. They are desperate for water. And if you look at the next heading in our Pew Bibles, it says the Amalekites defeated. They are in battle with the Amalekites. God brings them to this place of des desperation and dependence um, to teach them to trust in him, in his provision, his protection, his presence. Now, to understand the context of Exodus 17, we have to go back a little bit. Um, you'll notice we skipped a, li a little bit in, in the book of Exodus, in this, um, this journey. We, we left off last in Egypt, right? So our first snapshot of Moses, we have at the very beginning, the encounter with God at the burning bush. So here God meets with Moses and commissions him to return to Egypt and lead his people out. God promises to be with Moses. And Moses is initially hesitant, feels inadequate, but God reassures him, my presence will go with you. And so Moses returns to Egypt. God gives Moses signs to bring to the people, to bring to Pharaoh, his staff turning into a serpent. This is to prove to everyone that God has sent him. God has met with him. This is real. This is true. God is going with him. God also appears to Aaron, and Aaron is the mouthpiece of God. Um, now, this is where we left off, right? A lot's happened since this point. Firstly, the 10 plagues. Moses communicates God's warning to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no. You are not leaving. And so God brings about 10 plagues. Then we depart from Egypt, um, cross the Red Sea. As the Israelites leave, they're pursued by the Egyptians. And Moses cries out to God, and God instructs him, lift your staff, cross the Red Sea, the waters will part. And they do. And when Moses lowers his staff, the waters return, they consume the Egyptian army. Now, now they're out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. And the wilderness 
we think of New England wilderness, um, nice lush trees. That is not the wilderness they encountered. They encountered, I mean, the Middle Eastern desert. I mean, they have not just adults, healthy adults, they have infants, children, they have elderly with them. And they are thirsty. They come to the first place, Mara, after three days of no water. And the water is bitter there. Moses cries out to God, and God instructs him to do something. The waters become sweet, and they drink. And they go on, right? That's not their resting place. They are heading for the promised land. Um, So they have a journey ahead of them. Now, before us in chapter 17, we'll go to 16 and look, the Israelites grumble about a lack of food. I mean, they are in the desert. Moses communicates with God, who provides manna in the day, um, quail at night. Now, after some time, um, we get to our passage in chapter 17. A lot has happened. We see that this occurs in a place called Rephidim. Now we read this. Let's read together. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. In other words, they came thirsty, more than parched. They were literally traveling in the desert. And and we can read in verse 3, the people were thirsty for water there. And at the end of that verse, they fear, they imagine dying of thirst. So let's return to verse 1 with this in mind. We read they're traveling place to place as the Lord commanded. I mean, the last mention of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night is, is in Numbers 16. And, and chronologically, you'll see that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pages to go before we get to, to number 16. And so they have, I mean, conceivably, God guiding them visibly. There's the presence of God among them guiding them on. That It goes beyond go here, there, as disclosed to Moses in private. And we see they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there to drink. Now, Rephidim, as we'll see later in the passage, well, we won't see it. If you read it on your own later, you'll see that Rephidim should have water. Um, it's an oasis. I mean, there's a, it's a fertile area in the desert. And so there's an expectation, right, visually, as you're walking through the desert, approaching something that is an oasis, that there's going to be some provision. So there's expectation and even greater disappointment when there is no water, right? If you've been reading through Exodus on your own, this is so familiar, isn't it? Um, it should sound familiar because it happened at Mara. They went three days. They found some water, and it was too bitter to drink. And God provided. And then God led the people through the wilderness again to the oasis of Elim, which had fresh drinkable water. The next phase, which is directly before us, um, there, there was no food in this desert place. And so God provided manna and quail. And by now, we're three months, about three months, in, in the wilderness. I mean, this is wandering from place to place. And I don't know if you have been displaced for more than a week or two weeks or a month or three months, but I imagine it is not an easy place to be in. A place of dependence, 
a place requiring faith. But I want to slow down for a minute before we jump into verse 2. I want to draw your attention to something right in the middle of this verse that says that the Israelites were traveling where God commanded, right? By God GPS. They were traveling place to place as the Lord commanded, which means Rephidim is a place that God led the Israelites, imaginably, visibly, by a pillar of cloud. It was a place that did not have water, and God knew that it did not have water. Rephidim is not incidental or accidental in God's journey, uh, or in the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. It is the next destination for the Israelites in their formation, in what God's doing for them. Rephidim is where God wants his people to be. The Israelites, however, are disconnected from God. They don't get it. They don't understand what God's doing. And they don't, for a second, acknowledge God as having any part in the, of the total equation in them being there. They make no recognition that this is where God has led them, and they're anxious and quarreling. I mean, they point fingers at Moses and demand water. And that's what we read in verse 2. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And verse 2 continues with Moses' reply. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me and put God to the test? Now, it's not hard to sympathize with the Israelites here. I mean, God promised to lead them, what, to a land of milk, liquid, and honey, I mean, food. Um, but they are thirsty and hungry. And there's nothing like thirst to fuel desperation. I mean, the Hebrews experienced this extraordinary deliverance from, from Egypt, I mean, only to be met with these hardships that only desert nomads know of. Um, though they don't evoke God's name, in this entire passage, they were disappointed in God. They're disappointed in this inadequate provision and they point the finger at Moses. So then why does Moses talk about testing the Lord? I wonder about that. The, the Hebrews don't mention the Lord. They, they're quarreling. They're not even testing. They're upset with Moses and start to become demanding. So what does, then Mo, what does Moses mean when he says you're testing? Now it seems, as I dug into this further, that there's a little bit more to both of those words, quarreling and testing. Now, many times in Hebrew scripture, when that word test comes up, it is actually a, um, it's actually the ancient equivalent, right, of a courtroom with a, a judge and a trial. It's a technical word that Moses is evoking here. Moses is saying, you are putting God on trial. Um, in other words, quarreling in this context is not idle complaining. Right? It, it, it involves the people charging Moses, right? Moses, they, they want perhaps a new leader because they're not satisfied with where this leader has brought them. They want to go back to a place of security and not scarcity. And they make their accusation. Read this with me in verse 3. The people were thirsty for water there. They grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst. I mean, the question becomes more pointed when you turn it into an accusation. 
So not why did you bring us up, but you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. You did it. It's a charge. It wouldn't be an overstatement to say it's a legal charge. They're accusing him of killing them, of bringing about their deaths. You led us here to make us die of thirst. I mean, it doesn't sound like an exaggeration when Moses says this. He cries to the Lord in verse 4. Then Moses cried to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. I mean, for the ancient Hebrews, stoning was a legal action. It was a legal form of execution in in the same way that lethal injection is in many places today. If someone commits a crime worthy of death, the Hebrews would stone them. David's men discussed stoning him. They threatened him with that. Jesus was almost stoned. So was the woman caught in adultery. Stephen was stoned before the Sanhedrin, and he died. Paul was stoned, and he lived. The elders of Israel, actually, later in Numbers 10, they they actually discussed stoning Moses. I mean, this is um, a picture of Moses on trial because the Israelites were disconnected from God, and they're disappointed in God's provision. And so Moses, I mean, really, the, the picture of what they're upset with has to seek refuge. He goes to God in prayer. Um, He's desperate for God's protection. I mean, amidst growing complaints from the Israelites, I mean, Moses felt the burden of leadership. I'm sure Moses was thirsty too. I mean, there, there are vast deserts around him, which I might add, like Moses was 80 years old. He had nowhere to run. He had nowhere to hide. With each passing moment, with each mounting criticism on his leadership, it's, it's an understatement. My sermon title is an understatement for Moses to say, God, I don't like your people. I mean, he is desperate. And, and this is how God responds in verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now, Moses, uh, God, God doesn't respond to Moses therapeutically. He doesn't pretend that Moses' desperation is imagined. He responds practically by meeting a need, right? I mean, verse 6 says, Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God does something, right? God answers the need of the day, which should theoretically energize the people to, to know that Moses is called and trust God again, to trust God's provision and protection, to trust God's presence. Moses does just this. Now, as a shepherd, I, I read a lot of commentaries on, on um, just how miraculous this was, right? Moses is a shepherd. He knows the kind of rocks that are semi-porous, that have caverns, that theoretically you can chip away at and water will come out. But for a whole camp of Israelites, right, there, there are a lot of people there. there. There must be hundreds of gallons of water needed to feed, I mean, even the livestock, let alone the people. I mean, it is just so miraculous what happened. Um, now let's read how this ends, right? So, so there's this miracle. Moses is theoretically reinstated, and 
Moses, he called this place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Um, Massah means quarreled. Meribah means tested. Um, I mean, this place already had a name. It was Raphadim, but he renamed this place to recount their encounter with God. Now, he wasn't reminding them that they were wrong. He wasn't saying, you shouldn't have questioned my authority or my position, but rather he wanted to call out their need for God and remind them of their place in God's story. They're, they're, they quarreled and doubted God's provision. God answered their need. You know, Moses needed to be a pastor in this moment to help shape God's people and to help them see that God was doing something and is doing something. I mean, one thing that I alluded to, but maybe you noticed it as well in this text, is that Moses and not the people of Israel bring an awareness of God into the situation, right? Verse one says that Israel was traveling from place to place as God, the Lord commanded, but in verse three, the Hebrews blame Moses and say, why did you lead us here, Moses? I mean, the word for, for trial and because of the, sen the, the sentence of death is at stake, verse four does imply a legal judgment against Moses. But Moses says in verse two and in verse seven that God was the one on trial. Israelites wanted to focus on Moses, his failings, what he did. And Moses said, I am a mouthpiece. I'm doing what God is asking me to do. I'm leading where this pillar of cloud by day leads. Now, I wonder what we make of this, this spiritual condition of, of the Israelites. Uh, and I think there's a few ways we can understand it. I mean, we've been talking a lot in this passage or in this series about prayer, right? I mean, maybe the Israelites don't have a prayer life. I mean, it's clear that Moses is in communion with God, who's the source of Moses' leadership. Throughout these events leading up to Exodus 17, there's a consistent theme, right? The Israelites face challenges or threats. They complain or they express fear. Moses communicates to God in varying degrees of, of desperation, and then God provides a solution. I mean, there's a continuous dialogue between Moses and God, which shows God's continuous provision for the Israelites despite their grumbling or lack of faith. Now, Moses is the mediator who talks with God, and there is, I mean, at least in this passage, a real spiritual disconnect with the Israelites. Um, this, I mean, is a matter for another sermon, but, but I mean, the Israelites begin their descent into grumbling. Um, I mean, this is the fourth time, the fourth instance that word comes up. I mean, this spiritual state which is marked by vertical non-communication, right? The Israelites aren't communicating with God and there's horizontal um, complaints as a, I mean, a prelude to anarchy. Um, so, so their attention is drawn here. They're not looking up. I mean, this is the pattern that will shape their, their spiritual journey to come. Now, they don't get it. Um, they also don't get that by pointing the finger at Moses, by blaming, by scapegoating his leadership, um, they're, they're ignoring the very real presence of the, the pillar of cloud among them. They're, they're really indirectly managing their complaint against God, right? They, they are upset with his plan. They're upset with his purpose and his, his, the degree of his provision. They're upset with his presence and maybe Maybe the way to understand this is that they just weren't spiritually connected. You know, another option to understand 
this, this absence of God on the tongues of the Israelites is, is maybe more psychological or sociological. Right? Thinking about God amidst our trials, it only heightens our awareness that God acts providentially, that God is sovereign, that God, I mean, is aware of our trials, that God brought us here, right? To say it brings on a lot of dissonance, a little bit of disequilibrium, um, recognizing that God leads us into difficult places, right? In a a post-World War II play, The Sign of Jonah, is by, uh, I can't pronounce the first name, Ginter Rudenborn. Um, I mean, people question who was responsible for the, the Holocaust. They conclude everyone was responsible, those who did things by their action and those who didn't by their inaction, and they decide that ultimately God is responsible, and they put him on trial. I mean, their verdict in this is that God must become human, face suffering, humiliation, and death. It is very sad. Um, I think the baby has it right. Now, I think that we are much more prone um, to directly put God on trial than were the ancients. And C.S. Lewis makes this point, right? Individuals saw themselves as answerable to God. But maybe in our modern day, we reverse the roles. We evaluate God based on our own standards or our own experiences. And I can only say for a brief moment that some questions about God, like the problem of evil, are legitimate questions. Right? Bringing our true questions and doubts before God, I mean, is part of the journey of faith. And it can only strengthen our faith um, to do it honestly. But the intent behind the question matters. I mean, genuine seekers get answers, while those with a hardened heart against, I mean, about finding God, they, they see God as inscrutable. They, they can't find him. Um, so maybe we understand this, this absence of God on the lips of the Israelites as religious, or as, as more of a sociological or psychological phenomenon. I mean, the third option, and this is not um, to say that the other two might not have part, partial explanatory value, um, but the third option is that perhaps it's God's turn to talk, right? God brought the Israelites to this patch of desert, um, Rephidim is where God wants Israel to be. So what was God doing here? I think it's fair to say that God was answering the charges that his people were not bringing before him. God was answering the charges that were being deflected onto his mouthpiece, Moses. God was answering the the charges that Israel was too coy to actually challenge God with directly. The Israelites thought they were putting Moses on trial. Moses correctly maintains that the Israelites' grumbling and questioning was actually directed towards God and not him. I mean, the Israelites had grievances, right? They felt like they, they, their basic life needs were not being provided for. They did not feel safe. They questioned their journey out in this wilderness and where are we going and where's the next place? I mean, there's a lot of hardship Of course, God provided. Um, the Israelites have some spiritual amnesia, but they, they accuse Moses when perhaps they should be accusing God. Um, that's a bold statement. 
But by accusing Moses, Israel is denying the hand of God in leading them to where they are. They're denying that it was the mouth of God that spoke to Moses. In making promises that there will be a land of milk and honey, Moses is simply a scapegoat um, to the belief that God has not been faithful to his covenant. So who is on trial here? God his, or his servant? Um, they want Moses tried. But God submits himself to their courtroom. Right? Israel demands, give us water to drink. They question, why did you bring us here out of Egypt to kill us? They deny God's protection, God's benevolent good intent. God, God gives the Israelites the hearing they fail to request. And he answers their immediate need. I mean, acquitting Moses and delivers his people taking on the punishment in Moses' place. And, and this is actually referenced in the New Testament by Paul. I mean, Paul seeks Christ, sees Christ in this passage, in the rock that was struck so that the Israelites might live. And we could add, I mean, so that Moses might live, right? If this is a trial, if they wanted to put him to death. Um, I mean, by allowing himself to go on trial, God provides for the Israelites in more ways than they know. I mean, God promised to be present with them. He promised to protect them. He promised to provide for them. The act of Moses striking the rock symbolizes Christ being struck with divine judgment for humanity's sins. I mean, the water flowing from the rock represents Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And just, just as God was with Israel, so is Christ with the church. He serves as our protector, our provider, our ever-present Lord. Um, now, even though we are more willing to challenge God directly today than perhaps were the ancients, I want you to consider that there's a lot that we repress, and perhaps there's a value in being honest before God because God can handle it. I mean, honest, even if our feelings are so strong that they would beget us imagining to partake in the charging and punishing of God himself. Because on the other side of that honesty, we encounter, I mean, the God who not only willingly enters the courtroom, but has the power to leave at any moment and stays through to the unjust end where he would take on the very sin of the world. I mean, someone once wrote, all our disappointment and dissatisfaction show, I mean, ultimately a disappointment with God. And maybe they're right. I don't know about you, but I find the Israelites in this passage to be relatable. As, as Christians, I mean, we are a people called to hold on to the promise that God will make all things new. Um, I mean, just like the Israelites and the, the, the land that was promised to Abraham, we so easily get caught up in our, our little hopes for the next good thing in life. Um, I mean, our journey is one where God tests us, right? Where God actually yields perseverance, which, I mean, if we follow the track in James about what yields perseverance, it's not an easy track. And we're called to rely on God's presence in that. We're so quick to lose faith, to fail to trust God, to fail, uh, and, and, and we fall back on self-reliance in those moments. I think that the call in, in this, this transformation of our, our, of our communication with God is to get back into that mode of having the faith of a child, right? Where, where you know, maybe we are lost in our spiritual journey, but my, maybe it's better to feel lost like the child in the mall that cries out, Mom, where are you? Right? It's hard for me to say that, actually, now that I have a baby. Because um, I actually imagine her, 
her lost in the mall, which is really yeah, kind of, yeah. Those calls are calls to a loving parent based on an established relationship with the expectation that God will be present, that God will provide, that God will protect. God can handle our disappointment. God can handle our fear. God can handle where you are right now. And maybe we need more of this, like that, that communication, rather than this kind of communication where we deflect and blame and, and project our hurts and our questions onto others. Um, you know, Exodus is one giant lesson um, that we're insufficient on our own. Um, and knowing our insufficiency is okay. That's exactly where God wants you to be. I mean, dependent, right? We, we, we talk about this in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. That means dependence on bread every day. That's where God wants you to be. Um, being back, brought back again and again into an uncomfortable dependence to teach us to trust. His provision, his protection, his presence. Now, now this doesn't mean we have an easy journey. Um, but, I mean, it means that when we look ahead, we see the one who has made a way and calls the journey finished. And it's in him that we're united. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I thank you that when we think of our hope, we think of Christ who went before us, who finished the work that you set before him. I thank you that we have a good future in you. Um, I know we question, I know we have hurt, and I know we have disappointment. Um, but I pray that we would call upon you and reach out to you and, and, and we would not disconnect ourselves from you. Um, I pray that you would energize us today with, a, with a, the promise of your presence. Um, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.